And for our reading this evening, we're turning to the New Testament, to the Acts of the Apostles, and to the 17th chapter. And we will read together from verse 16 to the end of that chapter, verse 34. Paul is in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Timothy and uh, Silas in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I, was walk, walk, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, 
and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. We'd be considering verses 22 to 26 mainly this evening uh, as we we look at this uh, next passage, or verse 25 actually. Paul has addressed some people uh, with regards to the doctrine of Christ and uh, they have perhaps misunderstood what he is talking about. Uh, We read here in the 17th chapter of Acts that he had spoken to them about Jesus and the resurrection. That's verse 18. And it is strange that as on a previous occasion when Paul was preaching in Lystra, it's in Acts chapter 14, uh, having heard Paul speak and Barnabas standing alongside him, uh, the people at Lystra thought that these two individuals, Barnabas and Saul, were two old Greek gods, Hermes and uh, also Zeus. So uh, they took them for two old gods that had reappeared. And there was history in Lystra of a previous appearance of divine beings there. Here in Athens, it's the other way around. Uh, They think now that Paul is introducing them to two new gods. One is Jesus, and one seems to be his consort or or his partner. Uh, It's a feminine noun, Anastasius, resurrection. And so there's there's confusion. And so uh, they, in conversation, in discussion, they agree then, let's have a, a proper meeting. And the place for that was the Areopagus. Uh, Ares is linked to the, the, the sort of Greek word equivalent to Mars, and a pe- Pagos was a hill, and that's why we have in the old King James Version, Mars Hill. It was the place where discussion took place, and there were a number of people, they were well-educated, they were uh, cultured, uh, they, they were moral in many ways, religious as we'll notice in this context, and, and they wanted information now as to what this new these new gods that Paul was talking about. Because uh, this was the place, the Areopagus was the place where discussion was had with regards to these matters. And if it was then agreed that these named gods were deserving and worthy of worship, they would be included. Uh, they would be given a shrine. They would be given a temple. Uh, they might even end up in the, in the pantheon. Uh, there, the, 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 the many number, numerous gods. And they'd, they'd have a day set aside for them as well. A day when they specifically and, and exclusively would be worshipped. As all others were at the time. And so they, they gather together. So it's not so much that Paul now is brought here uh, uh, on trial. Uh, it's later on that he's put on trial. And we'll, we'll notice that as the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles continue. But uh, this is more of a, an informal sort of meeting to, to discuss these matters and for people to ask him questions about this. And what we begin to observe then is that the Athenians, as we mentioned in verse 22, oh, they, they loved this. Uh, people who were there, they spent all their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Anything new, anything up to date, anything that would tickle their, their uh, academic sort of uh, sense of saying, well, oh, that, that disagrees with something else we believe. They, they loved that. So it was a good discussion group, but how much it was helpful, how much it formed their life, how much it impacted upon the way they treated this, the, the, their wives or, or their children or their neighbours, well, we, we, we are left perhaps to, 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 to consider that. 
And this then is the, the second of three, uh, we could call, lengthy speeches. Speeches of some length that, that is recorded of what Paul said on occasions. It's the second of three. The first uh, is in chapter 13 of Acts, verses 16 to 41, where Paul is preaching there at Pisidian Antioch. And there's great detail there with regards to what he said to, to Jewish uh, uh, people in the synagogue there. And then there's this uh, account here in, uh, where he's speaking essentially to, yes, there are Jews, because uh, we read he was in the synagogue previous to that, speaking to Jews and uh, God-fearers, but also uh, those who were Gentiles, who believed in many gods. And then there is, thirdly, this uh, conversation that he has in uh, Miletus, and there he's speaking directly to the Ephesian elders. And so it's not so much more of an evangelistic message, the third message in Acts chapter 20 from verse 18 to 35. There Paul is speaking to leaders of the church at Ephesus. So those are the three main speeches that we've got. There were many more, but these are the three that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Luke has recorded in his outlining of the work of ministry there as the gospel continued through Europe. Now, we have to say that uh, although uh, it's a reasonable length, it has a, a very much uh, a parallel as to what Paul said at Lystra. We've mentioned that place already where uh, they were, Barnabas and Paul were assumed to be two old gods who had come to revisit. And there, the few verses in Acts, uh, Acts 14, verses 15 to 17, uh, talk, talk about this, and we'll mention them uh, in, in, at the point uh, where they become relevant to this conversation tonight. Now, whatever, whatever Paul starts, we observe something very important, that wherever he'll begin in conversation with people, we know where he'll end up. Now, that's quite important because, you see, if it was the case that this place, now where they all came to have a discussion, you, you perhaps might know where it would start because a query had been asked, somebody had been asked to come and explain what they'd said. And then after that, a conversation would begin, but who knows where it would end up? It could end up anywhere. Have you been in conversation? I think it's more about my student life, really, where um, a conversation's began and uh, you started on something else and, and you ended up hours later and you had to put a clock on it because you could stay up and it would move on. We'd discuss the whole world. Uh, and, and you know what would happen? The, the, the longer it was, uh, the, the less sharp we became in understanding what was being said and, uh, and it could end in arguments. So uh, you had to put a time limit to it. But um, in one sense, we, we knew where it would begin, but who would know where it would end? When Paul spoke, it might begin in different places, but it always be ended in the same place. What do I mean by that? Well, we're not going to look at it tonight, but when you come to verse 30 and 31, which is near the conclusion of this, uh, this message uh, that Paul gave, he's talking about evangelistic repentance, and he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's very clear that he's talking about the Messiah. And he's talking about the need for response, a reaction in our hearts, a, a willingness to admit and submit to him. So that's where we know where he will always end. Now some have commented that the rest of the message, certainly from verse 22 to 25, is of a more general nature. Uh, speaking perhaps coming into the realm of what you would call natural religion, natural philosophy. It's a sort of a general conversation. Uh, 
Uh, and, and that some say, and Paul realized that uh, when he came to Corinth, this wasn't the best approach. It wasn't best to sort of talk philosophy. So he, we know when he comes to, uh, comes to Corinth, he's much more direct. Uh, and uh, when he writes to them, he says, I wanted to know nothing else amongst you, say Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's clear that when he got there, that's the main theme. But it's the main theme here as well. But it's where he began. He began, perhaps, where they were. And that's quite an important point when we think of conversation that we might have with people. Uh, let's not assume that they, they know anything. Let's not assume that we know what they think. Because sometimes that's it. We, we interpret. We think they're bound to believe this. And then you talk to them about that. And they say, well, I've never heard of that. I'm not interested in that. So what we see here, uh, it was undoubtedly fundamental uh, and foundational that what Paul does here, it's not sort of a natural philosophy or some natural talk about religion in a vague sort of way. I think we can clearly say what Paul is looking to here to help him is to go back to the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11, actually. Which we sometimes think, well, that's not important. Let's start in chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. And then the promise is given to Abraham. And then we've got the promise of the seed coming and Isaac and all that. And then the promises are being fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as we look back into the Old Testament. Let's start there. No, well, Paul goes, yes, that's, that's suitable and applicable if you're speaking to Jews. The Jews knew about Abraham, the father of the faith, the patriarch, and the promise. So they would start there. But here now, he's like as if he's going back. Chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis. And can we not see three themes there in those opening chapters which come out here in what Paul says? First of all, he's going to talk about God as the creator. Well, immediately you see a link, don't you? Genesis 1 and 2. God the creator. And then, uh, not only that, but also God is the sustainer. Well, you look back with Adam and Eve and the generations that followed and everything that was provided. God not only created, but he sustained but also as well, there's a, then this purpose for human life. Why were Adam and Eve there? What, was it just a, a vague wish? No, there was purpose. They were given instruction as to what they were to do, to till the soil and to multiply and, and to look after the earth and to be stewards and, and to be obedient. So there was purpose and direction given. Well, Paul touches upon that here, doesn't he? When, when he talks about the, the nations of the world, uh, there's history, there's geography mentioned here. There's a sense of purpose. Now, this is quite important. Quite important because, you see, if, if you don't believe in the creator, well, you have to say it's all, um, it's all an accident. And if it's all an accident, well, then, to be honest, you've got no purpose. Oh, but I do have purpose. Ah, well, then you've made your own purpose up then. Because there is no purpose. But you give purpose to your life by having a family and working hard in a job, trying to do something in your community. But, to be honest... If it's all an accident, you thought it's a purpose, but it's no purpose at all. Because there's nothing to it. It's all an accident. Whereas the scripture says, no, God is the creator, and he's the sustainer, and he has a purpose for mankind. And what's that purpose? He'll touch upon it. That they might know him. Because these, here were people who were worshipping and religiously following, uh, at least amongst the many gods, an unknown god as well. 
And then the third element that comes out is this, as we looked at those verses 30 and 31, and you think of what happened when there was disobedience in the Garden of Eden, there was judgment, cast out to the garden. And then mankind went on, and they did what they wanted, and there was only evil in the hearts, and, and God came in judgment with a flood. And then it began again, and Noah and his wife and the three sons and three daughter-in-laws, they began again to establish themselves. And then you read of the Tower of Babel as they sought to build, to become like God themselves, and God judged. So can you see, as Paul will open this up here now then with these three thoughts, there is creation, there's sustaining and purpose, but there's also judgment. And this is exactly what Paul does here. If you look at it carefully, he speaks about the creator. He speaks about the purpose for mankind. And he speaks and warns about the coming judgment. So this isn't natural philosophy or, or, or Paul talking in a sort of a non-Jewish way. No, he, he's very much grounded and, and foundational truths which were part and parcel uh, of, of belief. So Paul was brought to this informal meeting uh, to the members of the Areopagus. Now, now, notice what he does immediately. Paul then stood in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, here's an interesting phrase because commentators are cool. They're divided uh, on it. Is this Paul now? Is this a veiled accusation? You know, there's nothing worse. I mean, you, you see it sometimes. You, you tell people, they're very religious. I, I can remember, um, well, he, he, yeah, he was, a, he was a county councillor and he used to come in regularly. But every other word was God or Christ or Jesus in his conversation with everyone. And, it, it, oh, it, you know, it, it upsets. It upsets. So the only way I could handle it was take him aside, not in front of anybody else, and I said... Can I ask you a question? I said, what, what chapel do you go to? Oh, he said, I don't go to chapel. I said, are you sure? I said, you go to Church of, Church of England, then, Church of Wales. I don't go to chapel at all. I said, well, I'll tell you, I've got a problem. I said, I'm, you seem to be very religious. I'm not, he said. I said, well, you are. I said, all I hear, you're talking about God, you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about Christ. Am I, he said. I said, it's every other word with you if you listen to yourself. I didn't realize, he said. Now, it didn't correct him, but it made him think. Now, in one sense, you see, you, you can be religious, in one sense, but you don't know God. Well, here we have this question now, then, that's, that's being asked. Was this a veiled accusation? You're very religious. You've got all these gods that you're worshipping. You're giving the impression that you're, you, 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 know God, you know the gods, but actually you don't. Or was it, uh, as others suggest, was it a mild compliment? As he later on, later goes on to say in his writing, Paul's writings, that, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You, you don't know him, but, uh, well, you, you're making your way, you're trying to find the path. Uh, you, you're on the right, you're in the right region, you're right in the right area, but you're going to need instruction, you're going to need direction, you're going to need wisdom that comes from above to help you in this. So, well, there's a debate. What do you think? Was it a veiled accusation or a mild compliment? Well, it could have been a bit of both, couldn't it? See, Athenian piety was well recorded. The Greeks, uh, the Greek writers spoke about Athens as a, a place of great religious understanding. The number of gods there in, 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 in the pantheon. 
But it touches upon them, perhaps, uh, the, the big place, then, the big place that this took and pl- played in their life. But although it had a big place, perhaps it was misplaced. And this is what Paul is going to come and touch upon here now uh, as we look at these verses. There was a great display, but without any real understanding. Alters then, we read, he noticed, Paul says, I I noticed something. He'd observed, we mentioned, when he went to Athens in verse 16, uh, Paul had to remain there while... um, on his own, while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. And while he was there, he was observing, he was watching, he was looking, and he picks up something he'd seen. Now, this is a good place to start. Uh, again, I can remember uh, being an Aberystwyth in the conference there uh, as, a, as a young young student. And uh, a preacher came to speak in the open air. And, and he started off, he said, now, we're all here in Aberystwyth, it's lovely, the weather's lovely. And he said, if you just look behind you, there's a hotel. And so we all turned around and looked at the hotel. And he said, can you see on the hotel, you've got the name of the hotel, and you've got two signs each side of the hotel. And, and everybody started to have a look. Yeah, yeah. RAC and the AA. And, and then from that, from that connection, then he took us into the gospel. No time to tell you, but he simply told us we were all alike, but we could be redeemed at Calvary using the letters of AA and RAC. Wonderful. But he found a point to identify with us immediately. And then he, then, he, then he worked around that to talk about the important things. Now, can you see what Paul is doing here? There's this altar to an unknown God. So, uh, he's going to speak to them about this. And, and he uses it as, as a means of entry now to begin this conversation. Now, whether to gods or to gods or to a god, it underlined immediately that here were people who were polytheists. That is, they believed in a multiplicity of gods. And they were quite happy, and this is why they have Paul here. If there are some additions that can be added, well, that's good, because we'll put them in and we will give them the reverence that they need, because um, they were aware that there might be unknown gods. And of course, in their thinking, you see, you've got to know who the gods are, because you've got to keep them on their right side. You've got to be able to placate them. You've got to be able to provide for them so that they will provide for you. So, so if you, any information you can give us, we'll take it on board. And if we will discuss it and if we think, yes, it's something we could, we, we could embrace, well, we will. And so you had this polytheism, multiplicity of gods. Couldn't name them all, perhaps. There were fears, great, great gods and then demigods, semi-gods. So Paul knows they're polytheists. But he uses that then, he uses that to this unknown God. And then he says, look this, Paul is going to say, well, but I'm coming to you now, and I'm going to talk to you not about the multiplicity of gods, I'm going to talk to you about the one God. The only God. The God who is the creator, the sustainer, and eventually the judge of all men. So Paul picks up this and observes this altar and he uses it as a springboard then to introduce the one God, the creator and the sustainer. Now they believed, as we said, in many gods. He's going to speak to them about the one God. Now let's look at the three simple truths that he mentions about God. One is in verse 24, one is in verse 25, and the third one is in verse 29. The first one in verse 24 is simply this. These are three negative statements in each of these verses. 
He says this God, this this one God, he, he's not, he's not something, or he's not this, or he, he's not to be, or he cannot be worshipped in this way. And sometimes what something is or something is not, something is something is or is not, that's more important than what it is. We can learn by the negatives, can't we? So what something or someone is not is just as helpful as the statement as to what someone or something is. And the first thing Paul says in verse 24 is this. The God who made everything, the Lord of heaven and earth, cannot be contained in a location or a building. And this uh, reflects biblical teaching. Solomon has built the temple. David had wished to do so, but he was told, no, you, you've been a man of war. You can provide the, uh, provide the necessary equipment and everything that's needed, but your son will build the temple. Solomon comes, he builds the temple. We read now of his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, from verse 27 to 30. It reflects biblical teaching very clearly. He says, but Lord, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less... This temple that I have built. Solomon was on the money. He was on the button there. Although they were going to build this t- temple, this, this, this place where people could come and worship, they were never to think that now the God who had brought them out of Egypt through the promised land was now going to be contained uh, in this building. Almost as if at one time uh, God, God, the Lord God had, had, had been everywhere with them, but now he was like, uh, like old and decrepit and was tucked away in the little residential nursing home where they could come and visit him, but he wouldn't be able to do perhaps much for them. No, he gives the impression very clearly and expresses it as, as Solomon only could do. Can you be restricted to this? No, he says. So that first thought is very clear. The Lord God who made everything, and and we might say this, the Lord God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands. What Paul is immediately doing, he's saying that this creator is not the creation. He is above the creation. Now that's immediately touching upon these two groups, the Stoics, that's what they believed. They were pantheists. God is nature. Not God in nature, but God is nature. Everything, the tree is God. Uh, the birds, as it sings, that's God, a reflection of God. It's all, it's all God. Human beings are God. The storm is God. Everything is God. No, Paul says, no, the creator is above. He is the creator of everything, but he himself is self, self-existent. And the second point in verse 25 is this. The only God is not to be served by human hands. Now this touches upon the point that once they knew who these, this multiplicity of gods were, they had to bring their offerings, they had to bring their worship, they had to bring, create a, a temple or something for them just to, 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 to sustain them, to, to provide for them uh, so that th- they could be looked after. So that they then would remain um, placated, I suppose, or at least quite, quite open. The, the gods would be quite open to maybe bless them. But if you didn't do that, well then, if the gods were angry with you, well, you only had yourself to blame. 
And it's strange how people think like that today. I can remember a, 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 a funeral of I took of a lady. And um, no connection at all with church life at all. Never been anywhere. And her husband said, yes, but you see, come, come and let me show you her, her bedroom. On the side of her bed. Can you see that book? I said, yes. He said, do you know? I said, oh, well, I know about that. That's the Bible. Yes, she just kept all our married life. She always had the Bible at the side of the bed. I said, well, did you ever read it together? I, I, can't, I don't think we did, he said, but um, it was always there. Now, can you understand in one sense you think that by, by perhaps providing a place for it there, not putting it away in a cupboard or, or handing it to a charity shop, by keeping it there, and that in some way you're, you're sustaining God, you're, you're saying, well, you know, we know who you are and um, hope you look after us. I remember another lady, she had a little cross. She told me she felt some strange things in her house, so she slept with this cross on her chest. And that gave her some sort of protection. Well, what we're thinking of here is that you cannot sustain God. We cannot provide for him in this sense. The living God does not depend on man's supply of offerings, of worship, or of buildings. It is actually he who we read. It's he who sustains us. This is what verse 26 is telling us. He's not served with human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And that's taking us back into Genesis 2 when God made Adam of the dust. And you read it, he breathed into him the breath of life. And Job says later that the breath of every single one of us is in the hand of God. And that's what we're understanding. It's God who sustains us, not we who are sustaining him. We're not to think then of this, of it as a, a mutual meeting of needs. We fulfill God's needs and then he will kindly bless us in our needs. And it's very clear that it's the Lord who blesses. Think of Psalm 145 verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And Jesus confirmed that truth later in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord God causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And Paul has already picked up this theme when he spoke at Lystra. And this is, this is where that reference back to that short message in Lystra is referred to in Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. We read, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. It's not that we have to sustain God or he depends upon us but that we depend upon him for our breath and for everything in life. And so the creator is also the sustainer and the provider. And his heart is a generous heart and his heart is kind. And there is no need then to, to seek to control him, to seek to appease him in that, that way. As also you cannot contain him within a building. And so the bottom line is, as John Stott says, we depend on God, he does not depend on us. The pantheists, the Stoics here, uh, thought of creation as God, God in all things, 
And uh, Paul now is making this clear distinction then. God is above all things. Now the third point, uh, it goes out of, uh, out of sync, really, verse 24, uh, verse 25, but we've got to move now to verse 29, and God willing we can come back and look at, uh, the, as we're looking at the truth of who God is here now tonight, we can revisit the, this section and look at the truth with regards to humanity, the purpose for humanity on another occasion. But verse 29, as we conclude, this evening, God cannot be represented by an image made by human hands or human design or human skill. Now, we, we know this was the case from the, the very commandments that were given out. We mentioned it last week from uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, no graven image, no likeness. Now, that is also the case, and that was the whole problem of the golden calf, wasn't it? As they came out of Egypt... The golden calf was worshipped. There can be no representation of God. We're not to think of God then in terms uh, that he in one sense is uh, a greater human being than we are. Uh, or more powerful than we are. We're not to think of God in human terms. And the, the phrase, the word we use here is, is anthropomorphic. We're not to think of God in human terms. Not to see him in, in the shape, the morph, the morphing of, of a shape in terms of him being a man. He's above that. And yet, Paul will come to it. There is a sense where the, the God who is beyond understanding, beyond description, beyond, certainly beyond definition, beyond really being known, can be known in a human person. But he's not come to that yet. He's going to, in one sense, recover all that at the moment. He's saying, you, you, can't, you can't use silver and gold and wood to, to, to make a representation and say, that is the God who created you. That is the God who sustained you. Now, in reality, you think, well, what is all this got to do with where we are in the 21st century? Well, you see, there are people who are doing that. It's the bricks and mortars, mortar of their home. That's what, that's what they're worshipping. That's what they spend all their time and effort on. It's, it's, it's the car. It's made of metal. Uh, whatever. It might, have, it might be a, a mobile phone, and it's got some very important sort of uh, metals in it again, and it's been all, all these things. And we, we, we worship. That's the central. That's the central point in our lives. But the image of God in human existence, then, we certainly know from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, Man is made in the image of God. Not that we now are make God in our image. God has made us in his image. That's the, this rationalism. This is what sets us above all the other created beings in the world. And if we then are able then, if we're able to relate to one another, which we certainly can do, does not the God who is the creator and the sustainer also he can be related to? He doesn't have to remain being unknown. So there's to be no containing of him, no controlling of him, and, and no copying of him in the sense that we can say, well, this is what God looks like. The one true God, in one sense, is beyond our comprehension, beyond definition, beyond our understanding. Yet, as we will see in verses 26 to 28 on another occasion, there is this revelation of the nature and purpose of mankind that points to this wonderful outcome of knowing this one who is, in one sense, unknowable. 
There is what's called transcendence beyond us. And yet also Paul will speak here of the imminence of God, that he's not far from any one of us. And that's the mystery of it all. God is near. God is close. And God has revealed himself to mankind and humanity in general, but also in the man of whom he speaks at the end, verse 30 and 31. Now, as I conclude, let me simply say, we need to make sure, as I said last week, that you're on the right side of history. We mentioned last week there are individuals who've made decisions to invade a country, bring a certain policy, to, to act a certain way. And that's happened in family life as well. They've decided to, to, to break that relationship, to start something new, left their children. There's always consequences. There's always consequences. And whether it's in family history, when the family gather together, it can be a funeral, it can be a wedding, uh, unless everybody remains silent, these things will, will come to the surface, won't they? And then basically they'll be saying, well, He's on the wrong side of the family history. The decision he made, on the wrong side. In terms of larger issues, political history, you mentioned last week, there's a leader in the eastern part of Europe, and he's made a decision, he's going to be on the wrong side of history. No question about it. But sadder still, are you on the wrong side of history with regards to this one who is to judge the world at the end of time? Have you repented? Have you trusted in him? Have you bowed your knee now and asked him for forgiveness? Or will it be that it is the case that you don't know, do not bow the knee now, but you will bow it in that great day? Because as all these polytheistic gods were given their day of worship and exaltation, there is a day, and we read of that here, there is a day already decided by God the Father when this one who was raised from the dead will judge the world. Please make sure you're on the right side of salvation history this evening as we step into 2023. Amen.